Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, in a conversation recorded just before we got word of the arrest of members of the Michigan militia group calling itself the Wolverine Watchmen for conspiring to kidnap the state's Democratic governor, Gretchen Whitmer, as part of a broader agenda of violent government overthrow, we talked with Mary McCord. She's a law professor at Georgetown University and legal director at their Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection, and an expert on unlawful militia that managed to be part of the political landscape while somehow escaping rigorous media scrutiny. Also on the show, and also escaping scrutiny, In a London courtroom, WikiLeaks' Julian Assange, an Australian citizen, has been facing extradition to the U.S. by request of U.S. prosecutors who want to try him under the Espionage Act and put him in prison and likely solitary confinement for life. Elite U.S. news media have awards on their shelves for reporting done based on WikiLeaks revelations of war crimes and other malfeasance by the U.S. government, but that hasn't translated to defense or even interest in Assange's case, despite its unprecedented nature and the implications it holds for all journalists who seek to reveal things the state would prefer hidden. We'll talk about that with Chip Gibbons policy director at the group Defending Rights and Dissent. That's coming up, and we'll get right to it. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group Fair. A major worry in an electoral season that has enough of them is the prospect of people in military garb and armed with lethal weapons showing up at polling stations, marching around and minimally staring menacingly at people. Some of those would be part of self-declared militias, a term we've heard thrown around, but news reporting on militia intervention in the election, for example, reads a bit like that of an oncoming storm cloud. It's not good, but what are you going to do? The thing is, there are laws, and we can have a public conversation around the fact that people in camo with guns are showing up at social justice protests and threatening people, claiming they have a constitutional right to do so. Addressing a concern starts with understanding it, and that's what our guest does. Mary McCord is legal director at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection and a visiting law professor at Georgetown University. She joins us now by phone. Welcome to Counterspin, Mary McCord. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's start, I guess, with some definition. I mean, what defines a militia and what makes a militia unlawful? Right. Well, it's a good question because oftentimes these unauthorized armed groups of individuals will point to the Constitution's use of the word militia as their authority to exist. But militia, as used in both federal and state law, 
simply refers to all able-bodied residents between certain ages. It's usually like 17 to 45 or some states 17 to 55 who are available to be called forth by the government in defense of the state. So in the case of the U.S. Constitution, Congress has that authority to call them forth through statutory enactments, and then they would report up through the president. And in the states, it's the governor who has the authority to call them forth. But there is no authority under federal or state law for groups of armed individuals to sort of self-activate as a militia and undertake what are typically law enforcement functions or even functions of actual state-sponsored militias. So the only lawful militia is a militia that's been called forth by the state. For example, the state National Guards, those are what the Constitution refers to as the state militias. Those are official military organizations that report up through the governor or the governor's deputized person. So there's no authority for just this sort of self-deployment. Well, I wonder if we could talk a little bit about um, D.C. versus Heller, because the Second Amendment is this kind of zombie idea. It's this idea that just won't let go the invocation of it. And even news media presented as kind of, well, some people interpret the Second Amendment as giving them the right to to organize and do this. But the law actually did speak on this, yeah? Yes. In fact, the Supreme Court has been very clear about this. There's a lot of gray area in the Second Amendment. This is not one of those gray areas. So I'll get to Heller in a minute, but Heller actually reiterated an opinion that the Supreme Court issued in 1886. In that case, it actually upheld a state statute, which exists on the books of 29 states, even to this day, a state statute that bars bodies of men from associating together as a military unit or parading or drilling in firearms with public. Now, mind you, this dates to post-Civil War. That's when these statutes were passed. And you can imagine the last thing that states wanted to have to reckon with were rogue militias that might threaten their own authority. So in that case in 1886, the Supreme Court thought it without question that states must be able to ban paramilitary organizations in order to preserve peace and good order. 2008, in District of Columbia versus Heller, the Supreme Court decided for the first time that the Second Amendment protects an individual right to bear arms for individual self-defense, and it actually pointedly contrasted that right with things that are not protected. And it restated its decision from 1886 that the Second Amendment does not prevent states from prohibiting paramilitary organizations. And in fact, all states do. Well, and we're going to get to that to that state-by-state guide that I know that ICAP has just put out. But, you know, the law is just words on a page until it's activated. And the group that you work with, the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University, activated the law in the wake of the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017, in which listeners will know James Fields drove his car into people who showed up to oppose this, um, you know, tiki torch Nazi evoking march, and Heather Heyer was, was killed and many were injured. What did you see in that suggested a response that you could use with existing legal and policy tools, and and what came out of that? 
Yeah, that's where this sort of strange niche expertise has developed in anti-militia law. That's, that's really where it first started. So in the immediate aftermath of that really horrendous event, a lot of commentators were a little bit shrugging and saying, so, well, what can be done? There's a First Amendment right to engage in free speech and assembly, and there's a Second Amendment right to bear firearms, and Virginia is an open carry state. And, you know, it's kind of like, wow, what can be done? But as lawyers, and particularly those I'd been spent most of my career at the Department of Justice until early 2017, and as lawyers, myself and my colleagues, we thought, well, the First Amendment does not protect violence, and it doesn't protect incitement to imminent violence. And the Second Amendment, thanks to the decision in Heller, we know protects an individual right to bear arms for self-defense, but it doesn't allow groups to organize together as private armies. And so that's what led us to the state anti-paramilitary activity laws in Virginia, which is where the Unite the Right rally took place. And that's what also eventually led us to learn that all 50 states include provisions either in their state constitutions or in state statutes that bar private, unauthorized paramilitary activity. And so we relied on those states in, in Virginia as a constitutional provision as well as a criminal statute and also an additional criminal statute that bars individuals from falsely assuming the functions of law enforcement, as we see some of these militias do. So we relied on all of those laws to seek a court orders to prohibit these groups from returning in the future and engaging in that kind of armed, coordinated use of force or projection of the ability to use force. We weren't seeking damages for injuries in the past. There's other lawsuits doing this. This was purely forward-looking relief, and we represented the city of Charlottesville and local businesses and local residential associations who were concerned that the white nationalists were going to return with their heavy you know, militarization and cause similar violence in the future. And that case was successful. We won on all of our theories against a motion to dismiss the case. And then after that, actually, it resolved before trial because every one of the 23 different individual and organizations who were defendants ended up agreeing by consent decree to court orders that would prohibit them permanently from returning to Charlottesville as part of units of two or more people acting in concert with weapons during any rally, protest, demonstration, or march. And so that work is what caused us to do then ultimately a 50-state catalog of the laws that prohibit private paramilitary activity. That's what's led to us to actually partner up with the district attorney in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in another similar case against an unlawful militia there. And it's what led us to do the 50 fact sheets that we've recently published, separate one for every state, to help people know what to do if they see groups of armed individuals around polling places. And that's not just so that voters will know that that can be intimidating and that it's illegal, but it's also so election officials will know and so local law enforcement will know and state elected officials will know and state attorney generals and secretaries of state because there's been such a mythology about the Second Amendment that so many people actually believe it protects this activity and it does not. So part of this was just to make sure to get that word out there that correct the record, this is not constitutionally protected. And I'll just add, uh, in looking through your recent writings, I see the phrase, sit idly by recur as an indication that that's not what we need to do. We don't need to just 
let this happen, there are things that folks can actively do to push back against the encroachment of these unlawful militias in our communities. Yeah. That's right. In fact, that phrase is from the circuit court's opinion in in our Charlottesville case that the state and the city should not have to sit idly by and allow this to happen. And in fact, since we put out these fact sheets in the last week, we've had engagement with uh, state and local officials at multiple different levels from multiple different states. And some are starting to make strong statements. The district attorney in Philadelphia, for example, held a press conference just recently with uh, election officials as well as state and local elected officials, and he invited me to be part of that as well to explain to the voters that they intend to take voter intimidation laws seriously and the anti-militia laws seriously, and they will be enforced so that every voter in Philadelphia can feel safe in going to the election that the district attorney's office and other election officials are monitoring for this and won't allow it to happen. And, you know, our hope is that more officials will make similarly strong statements. It should be a completely nonpartisan issue because it's not to anyone's benefit to intimidate voters. It's not to anyone's benefit to have armed, non-publicly accountable individuals, you know, private armies on the streets. And so, again, we put this out there informational in a nonpartisan way in the hope to just be able to give people a chance to prepare for things that could be coming, but that we hope will not be. We've been speaking with law professor Mary McCord, legal director at the Institute for Constitutional Advocacy and Protection at Georgetown University. Mary McCord, thank you very much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you. If it were not for a tiny handful of journalists... Shadow proofs Kevin Gastola preeminent among them, Americans might be utterly unaware that a London magistrate for the last month has been considering nothing less than whether journalists have a right to publish information the U.S. government doesn't want them to. Not whether outlets can leak classified information, but whether they can publish that information on as in the case of WikiLeaks, U.S. war crimes and torture and assorted malfeasance to do with, for instance, the war on Afghanistan, which just entered its 19th year with zero U.S. corporate media interest. Assange's case, the unprecedented use of the Espionage Act to go after a journalist, has dire implications for all reporters, but this country's elite press corps have evidently decided they can simply whistle past it perhaps hoping that if and when the state comes after them, they'll make a more sympathetic victim. Joining us now to discuss the case is Chip Gibbons. He's policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent. He joins us now by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Chip Gibbons. Always a pleasure to be on Counterspin. Well, I wondered first, given the absence of U.S. news media attention, if you could tell us just what's happening. I mean, it's a it's a hearing for Julian Assange's extradition. But in the very informative webinar that Defending Rights and Dissent did last night with Kevin Gastola of Shadowproof, who's pretty much single handedly reporting on this, he called it a, a trial. So it feels like things are shifting around just in terms of what this means. And so if it's not too crazy a question, what's going on? 
Sure. So the U.S. has indicted Julian Assange with 17 counts under the Espionage Act, as well as a count under the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Assange is not a U.S. person. He's an Australian national. He was inside the Ecuadorian embassy for a number of years as Ecuador had granted him asylum and the U.K. had refused to basically recognize that and let him leave the country. So he was de facto imprisoned inside the embassy. And uh, after the in, indictment the U.S. issued, the new government of Ecuador, which is much less sympathetic to Assange than the previous Correa government, let the U.S. come in the embassy and, and seize him. And the U.S. is seeking Assange's extradition to the U.S. from the U.K. I guess it's probably technically a hearing, but Kevin's point was that it's more like what we would think of as a trial and that there's different witnesses, there's expert testimonies, there's different legal arguments at stake. Uh, the defense, the witness portion of it has closed. It ended uh, last week. And, you know, there's going to be closing arguments submitted in writing, and then the judge will render a decision, and that decision will be appealable by either side. So regardless of the outcomes, we can expect appeals. So it does very closely mirror what we would think of more like a trial than than a a hearing in the U.S. court context. It's important to really understand what's at stake with Assange's extradition. He is the first person ever indicted by the U.S. government under the Espionage Act for publishing truthful information. The U.S. government has considered indicting journalists before. They considered indicting Seymour Hearst very famous investigative reporter. They considered indicting James Bamford because he has the audacity to try to write a book on the National Security Agency. But they've they've never done that. And Obama's administration looked at the idea of indicting Assange and said, no, this would violate the First Amendment and it would open the door to all kinds of other bad things. But the Trump administration clearly doesn't have those qualms. And it's, it's worth pointing out that Assange's indictment follows a unprecedented period initiated by the Obama administration of indicting whistleblowers or journalist sources under the Espionage Act. So we've seen Chelsea Manning indicted. We've seen Edward Snowden indicted under the Espionage Act. But to indict the journalists, though, is is a real new step and not for the best. And well, and that's what I wanted to just to underscore or ask you to. We do have rules around journalists being provided materials that might be hacked or that might be illegally obtained or that might be leaked. Journalists have a right, I mean, through the smirkiness, journalists have a right to publish information, even if that information is illegally obtained. Is that not true? That's what the Supreme Court has said in the past. That is the precedent, and I believe that is what prevented the Obama administration from moving against Assange. It'd be very interesting to see how this plays out in a U.S. court in the current environment. I mean, if whoever, Trump or Biden, whoever is president, you know, when this finally comes to the U.S., actually pursues this, and they actually are ruling, allowing, you know, the persecution of journalists, I mean, that's going to be a really dark dark assault on free expression rights. And it's worth remembering. And, you know, Julian Assange is clearly very reviled in the corporate media and the political establishment right now. 
But the information he leaked came from Chelsea Manning. It dealt with U.S. war crimes. And he worked with the New York Times, The Guardian, Dear Spiegel, Le Monde, Al Jazeera to publish this sort of information. So if he can go to jail for publishing this, why why can't the New York Times? And, you know, is that a door anyone wants to open? And, you know, there is a big press freedom angle here. I also want to talk about the fact, though, like what did Julian Assange publish and why did it matter? You know, one of the witnesses that took the stand in his defense was Clive Stafford Smith, who's one of the founders of Reprieve UK. He's represented men detained at Guantanamo Bay and victims of U.S. drone strikes. And he discussed how the information published by WikiLeaks, given by whistleblower Chelsea Manning, like has aided their work, including getting a court ruling in Pakistan saying that U.S. drone strikes were illegal and constituted a war crime. And other people who have done advocacy or journalism around Guantanamo testified about how WikiLeaks by published the Guantanamo Bay files, which showed how the U.S. government was holding people that didn't suspect of any crimes. Right. I mean, Julian Assange is accused of publishing information about war crimes, about human rights abuses, and about abuses of power that have been tremendously important, not just for the public's right to know, but also has made a real difference in advocacy around those issues. You know, people were able to go and get justice for victims of rendition or able to go and get court rulings in other countries about U.S. drone strikes because of this information being the public domain. So attacking Assange, persecuting Assange, disappearing him into a supermax prison, this is a real blow to reporting and human rights advocacy. And, you know, Assange isn't even a U.S. national. He's an Australian citizen. He didn't publish this information in this country. So basically, the U.S. is saying that if you exist anywhere in the world and you're a journalist and you do, you know, what I would call journalism, you know, exposing the crimes of the powerful. I know a lot of journalists in this country don't do that, but they can come and charge you with espionage, put you in solitary confinement put you in a supermax prison, we miss how high the stakes are in this country on this issue, but it's not lost on the rest of the world. I mean, look at who are Julian Assange's supporters. He has on his defense team uh, Balthazar Garzon, who's the very famous Spanish ex-judge who indicted Pinochet. His main attorney, Jennifer Robinson, is a famed human rights attorney who, in addition to representing Assange, has used information released by WikiLeaks in her other human rights cases. His international supporters include Jeremy Corbyn, the member of the British Parliament, Yanis Varoufakis, the former finance minister of Greece, Lula, the former president of Brazil, who himself was a political prisoner, Rafael Correa, the former president of Ecuador, who granted him you know, asylum and has now had to leave the country as a victim of lawfare, continues to support him. You oftentimes see in the media he wore out his welcome with Ecuador. That's not true. The Ecuadorian government officials who granted him asylum still support him. Jean-Luc Mélenchon, the French, you know, left-wing insurgent candidate. So if you look around the world, I mean, like, high-profile left-wing politicians, including current and former heads of state and, you know, internationally renowned human rights activists, 
support Assange. And that's because they understand this is about exposing war crimes. This is about exposing human rights abuses. And I wish more people in the U.S. would realize that's what's going on here. Right. And finally, you know, the journalists who are kind of holding their nose right now on covering it aren't offering to give back the awards that they won based on reporting, uh, relying on WikiLeaks revelations, you know. And James Risen had an op-ed in the New York Times a while back in which he was talking about Glenn Greenwald, but also about Julian Assange. And he said that he thought that governments like he was talking about Bolsonaro in Brazil, as well as Donald Trump, that they're trying out these anti-press measures. And he said they seem to have decided to experiment with such draconian anti-press tactics by trying them out first on aggressive and disagreeable figures. And what struck me about that is that I feel like that's where the public comes in, frankly, because it's really for us to decide, like, are we going to say, well, you know, I don't like Julian Assange, so I'm not going to care about this case. You know, it's it's up to us to say we can separate principle from person if we need to, you know, that we can see what's at stake and that we won't allow, in other words, media, which and in this case, an explicit tactic of sort of demonizing a person so that you can be encouraged to think, well, this has nothing to do with me. And if Assange, something bad happens to him, that doesn't have anything to do with me. And, you know, unfortunately, media are helping us make that disassociation from the person and the principle here. Yeah, I mean, the U.S. media has done a really fantastic job of demonizing Julian Assange, which is not to say there can never be any legitimate criticisms or differences of opinion with him. I know a lot of people, including many of his longtime supporters, were very sort of displeased with some of the stuff he did or said during the 2016 election. But at the end of the day, right, that doesn't give the U.S. government the right to disappear and torture someone for the crime of exposing its own actual crimes, right? Whether or not you agree with everything he's ever said or done, and there's there's no one on this planet who I agree with everything they've ever said and done, not even my, myself for that matter, right? He took real risk to bring truth. I mean, I believe he said something like, you know, if wars can be started based on lies, then peace can be brought based on truth, Right. I mean, that's the motto he's operating under. And we need people like Julian Assange and WikiLeaks to pursue the truth, to shine light on these abuses of power. We've been speaking with Chip Gibbons, policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent. They're online at rightsanddissent.org. Chip Gibbons, thank you so much for joining us this week on Counterspin. Thank you for having me again. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. If you missed part of today's show or you'd like to hear previous shows, you can find shows and transcripts on our website. It's FAIR.org. That's also the place to sign up for FAIR's newsletter, Extra, or our Action Alert Network. The show's engineered by Erica Rosado. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.